The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Serial Spirits, the podcast. It was July 27th, 1981. Walsh's wife, Reve, and their six-year-old son, Adam, were at this Sears store in the Hollywood Mall. Reve let Adam watch a group of older boys play video games while she was three aisles away shopping for a lamp. When she returned about five to ten minutes later, Adam was nowhere to be found. So they said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, give us your phone number and address and we'll contact But nobody's ever contacted Bill, ever, ever. Ten years later, Jeffrey Dahmer is captured. It made every newspaper across the United States, including the one in Birmingham. He immediately saw Dahmer's uh, mugshot in the paper there the same way I did, the same day I did. And he said it hit him like a baseball bat when he saw that mugshot. And he made his way on his own all the way back to Florida Hollywood Police Department with the paper and showed it to them and told them this is the guy and they asked him the same question they asked me what are you doing coming in now how come you didn't come in 81 he said but I did come here in 81 you know I gave the one of your cops the, the, the tag number literally thousands of posters just like these are being distributed all over Florida the Walsh has launched what's still considered today Florida's largest search for a missing child he's our only child beautiful little boy and we just want him back more than anything i just want that person to know that we want to help them as well as adam one moment adam is playing video games at a sears store the next minute he's gone vanished there were shoppers all around even a security guard it was the middle of the day yet no one really saw much of anything. What exactly did Timothy Pottenberg say that he had seen that day that made them zero in on it? Okay, Timothy Pottenberg went to the Hollywood Mall with his mother and his grandmother. They parked in the North parking lot, right near where where Bay Walsh parked, only a few spaces away. They came into the mall through, through the Sears, North entrance, and went into the, uh, wanted all, their way all the way over into the mall. And they eventually ended up eating, having lunch in the food court. The sun went down, the store closed, and Adam was nowhere to be found. We're the parents of, of Adam Walsh, who's been missing since yesterday noon from the Hollywood Sears Mall on Hollywood Boulevard. Six and a half years. Ravey Walsh. We'd appreciate anyone with any information about him or have seen him or think they saw him to please call the Hollywood police. So they headed out to get the van and they stopped in the toy department. Timothy wanted to stop in the toy department. That's when he saw this guy fumbling around with uh, some kind of a toy or something. And he was just standing there, but he didn't look like he was interested in the toy. He just kept staring at all these kids, you know? And then finally he just ran out the north exit and ran towards the uh, east. Now, part two of the Walsh Dahmer Conspiracy with Willis Morgan. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. 
skinning sometimes, uh, slitting, slitting all the way open. Uh, I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people. Then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. guys welcome back to another episode of serial spirits the podcast it is me your host brendan shea and with me is the beautiful and the lovely annie weaves how's it going shea bay annie we have uh had a amazing interview that you did with willis morgan and part one was pretty incredible and we're getting ready to start the second part right now on the podcast so why don't you give everybody a little quick recap? We heard one in the beginning of the episode, but why don't you go ahead and kind of lay it out there, what we heard so far on this uh, inter- in this interview. This is the second part of an interview with Willis Morgan, the author of a book called Frustrated Witness. On the day that Adam Walsh was kidnapped in Hollywood, Florida, Willis had a run-in with a man that he later identified as Jeffrey Dahmer. What you heard in the first part of the interview was only part of his investigation that he has done over the past 40-plus years since Adam disappeared and was found. So this is the second part of that interview. We pick up with Willis describing yet another witness who was at the mall in Hollywood, Florida, on the day that Adam disappeared with even more incredibly damning evidence of this blue van, and a man that many people have identified as Jeffrey Dahmer. So guys, here's part two of the amazing interview Annie did with Willis Morgan. Uh, Philip Law is another witness. Philip was going there to the Sears, or to pay a bill though, at the service counter. As he's going in, he's, he, he saw a parking spot that he had his eye on, but he lost his spot because the blue van that was parked in the fire lane was causing traffic to have to go around it. And because, you know, the fire lane is only like a foot wide, which right. wipes there just to let you know not to park anywhere in that area. It's not, so it's not like a wide space because there is no parking. So it was blocking part of the, uh, that would be the northbound lane. So anybody go northbound would have to go around it. And there was one bus going around. So the other traffic going south had a hold up and, that's the direction he was going in. So while he was being held up, somebody else took his spot that he wanted. So he lost his parking spot and he had to park further out. And so he was upset. And then he was even further upset as he went into Sears because he had to walk around the blue van that was the cause of the problem. As he's walking into Sears, he sees this guy manhandling this little kid and dragging him out of the store. And the kid's saying, I don't want to go. You're not my daddy. You're not my daddy. I don't want to go. And Philip said he started walk, turned around, started walking backwards, watching this. 
And he knew there was something wrong and he had to remember this. So he kept repeating the, uh, the description of the kid. He said he, he decided to concentrate on the little boy more than the guy in case a, a kid showed up missing, you know, and that he would know that this, you know, the description. So anyway, he went to the counter, but as he was waiting in line, he had second thoughts. He ran back outside, but the guy, the blue van, and the little kid were all gone. So when P Philip went to the Hollywood Police Department, he talked to a detective named Detective Smith. And Detective Smith, this was years later before he came forward. He said he didn't come forward right away because he felt so bad about not doing anything, not stopping it when he had the chance that he could have prevented this. And I've always felt the same way. I always felt guilty because I felt like I'm the one that could have stopped it. Because Phil thought in his mind that that could have been a stepfather because the kid was screaming, you're not my daddy. And that's what right. kids have a less respect for stepfathers than they do their real parents. And Phil was thinking he had a kid about the same age. He wouldn't manhandle his kid the way this kid was being manhandled. When Phil finally went to the police department, uh, he talked to Detective Smith. Detective Smith outright outright dismissed him, but said he would have appreciated him coming forward, but everything he said had nothing to do with the Adam Walsh case, even though he described everything to a T, even Adam, because he concentrated on Adam. They dismissed him. They dismissed the blue van, what, his statements on the blue van, even though there was a blue van. They, they just dismissed. So he went over Smith's head to uh, Sergeant Dunbar, Smith's sergeant, and tried to get him to do an interview with him, and Dunbar refused as well saying what he's saying is nothing to do with the Adam Walsh case. So he worked his way all the way to the state attorney's office. Phil Mundy from the state attorney's office uh, decided to give uh, Philip Law an interview, but only because he says that Philip was insistent on giving, have, having uh, his statement on record. And just to keep him quiet, he would go ahead and give the interview, even though this has nothing to do with the Adam Walsh case. But during the interview, he describes Adam to a T, and, and he describes the blue band, and as he described, he's going, he had freckles and a, a gap tooth and a captain's hat. And he's going, oh, he had a captain, oh, he had flip-flops, oh, he had, <laughs> you know, he's describing Adam to a T. And, right. And the blue van, everything. And yet, in the end, he still dismisses uh, Philip Law, saying this has nothing to do with the Adam Walsh case. So, because keep in mind, at, at this time, they were already in full cover-up mode. Right. Okay. So there are many other witnesses too. If you want to go through each one of them, we could be here all night. The one that I think stood out to me was so the last time that Adam was actually reported being seen by anybody, he was playing at or was playing a game at an arcade or or one of the stores there with right. a child. I believe his name was Vernon, and Vernon went with his grandfather to the police to recount his encounter, correct? And they had a, a strange encounter with the police there, if you want to call it strange. Right. Okay, Vernon Jones, who was also, uh, I think, nine or ten years old. And uh, Vernon was actually playing one of the Atari baseball games with Adam at, the, at that point. And um, Vernon says, while he was playing with Adam, there was this disheveled man, young, standing, uh, 10 feet or so to his left and Adam was to his right and he was hiss hissing at Vernon going, psst, psst, hey you, 
come here, like that. Vernon looks up at this guy thinking to himself, man, I'm not going with you. And then just then he hears a big crack. And he looks back and it's Adam with this big grin on his face because he just got a grand slam home run. And he was really <laughs> proud to beat, you know, an old right. boy. But Vernon wasn't so happy about it. So he says that he just went around to the other side of the aisle and started playing by himself Donkey Kong and left Adam there. And then later on, his grandfather, see what happened was he went there with his grandfather who was in the uh, tool department because he wanted to buy some tools, craftsman tools. And Vernon, at you know nine years old, wasn't interested in tools, so he stayed in the toy department. But later that evening, Vernon was in his bedroom because they were visiting their grandparents in Hallandale, the next town over. And uh, his grandmother called him into the living room and said, Vernon, get in here. They had the news on. They said, you were in the toy department. Did you see this little boy? And he looked on the TV and he says, that's the boy I was playing the video game with. Mm. So the grandfather took him to the police station the very next morning. And as he's walking into the police uh, station, there was this big, heavy set, a white police officer standing there. He went up to him to inquire about the case. And this cop turned, he was standing outside chewing uh, tobacco. And he turned to his grandfather and said, boy, I ain't got time for you. And he spit a wad of tobacco on his grandfather's shoe. And Vernon says, he still remembers the tobacco splattering all over his grandfather's shoe. And he couldn't understand why this guy was calling his grandfather boy when he was so much younger, because this was the first time he ever experienced racism. And the grandfather understood what all that was about. So he immediately took Vernon by the hand, they turned around and went home. So he never made it into the police department. So they lost Vernon as a witness until years and years later, when Vernon grew up, he wrote John Walsh a letter telling John how bad he felt because he was one of the boys in the toy department. And he told, explained to John what he witnessed and everything. And John sent the letter to the Hollywood Police Department and said, hey, you need to interview this guy. To this day, they've never called him. And Vernon and his grandfather felt that, you know, they were being dismissed because they were African-American, correct? Well, by that one police officer that sped on a shoot. Right. One final encounter, because like you said, we could be here for hours talking about all of the encounters that later came forward. I want to talk about Mia Taylor and her brother's encounter that they had, because some of that information comes into play later when you talk about the botched investigation that the police department did there. Right, right, right. Now, okay, Mia Taylor is one of the witnesses that was there in the toy department on the day Adam was abducted, but she was there two days on July 27th and which was Monday and on Sunday, July 26th. Now on Sunday, July 26th, when Mia was there, there was this guy that came into the toy department and tried to abduct her brother, Joel, the day before Adam was abducted. Okay. But fortunately a mother was nearby and the security guard had shown up and the guy took off. And on their way out, they also saw this, this same guy standing there leaning on the blue van outside, right by the, on, uh, by the fire lane. And that's the day before. On the day Adam Walsh was abducted, they were back in the mall again because the mother had a friend that worked there. And so they were in the toy department again. And her brother, Joel, was actually talking to Adam. And 
we just saw this disheveled man come up and he was leaning over Adam, talking to him and taking him by the fingertips out of the store. And her brother said, mom, can I just stay with the, uh, this boy? I want, I want to stay with him for a little bit longer. And she said, no, his dad is here now. So Peggy, Mia's mother, thought that was his father. So you have to understand, Bill Bowen thought it was an older brother. Philip Law thought this guy was a stepfather. Peggy, Mia's mother, thought it was his dad. Had I gone down there, I would have known better. I would have right. known that's not a father, that's not a, a stepbrother, a brother or a stepfather. I would have done something. I can understand these other witnesses letting their guard down and not doing anything because everybody says, why were these witnesses there and nobody did anything about it? You know, I would have known better and I would have done something. And that's why I've always felt bad. And that's why I do what I do. Now, um, yes, Mia, Mia and I have done many radio shows together and you can listen to them on my um, website, frustratedwitness.com. You can go on to the uh, interview page uh, where I've done many wit uh, interviews with witnesses. And uh, you can listen to some of those uh, interviews that other witnesses have done as well. All these witnesses came forward and their stories were just basically pushed to the side by the Hollywood Police Department because they had already set their sights on two other people that they thought could possibly have done this. One encounter that I thought was very interesting, again, tying the blue van to all of this information, all of this evidence, came from a man named Dennis Bubb, who may have actually seen, besides the abduction, probably the most disturbing part of this case, potentially, correct? Correct. Now we're back to the Florida Turnpike and the witnesses from that site, okay? Like you uh, said earlier, about 10 days after Adam's abduction, the severed head was found off the Florida Turnpike on August uh, 10th, that would have been. Okay. August 7th, uh, Dennis Bubb was driving along the uh, Turnpike, heading back up north. Uh, he drove for a supermarket chain, which was called Publix, one of the largest or the largest supermarket chain in, in, uh, in Florida. And now they've been expanded to throughout the South. But back then they were only in Florida. So he would do those runs between uh, Lakeland, Florida, and Central Florida, and South Florida, because that's where the main warehouses were up in Central Florida. That's where they started out of. And uh, he would do those runs. So he would take uh, double trailers, uh, up, up, empty ones, up to Lakeland and pick up full ones and bring them back down to South Florida. While he was driving along the Florida Turnpike at Mile Marker 30, he saw this blue uh, van parked in the uh, swale area the turnpike and there was this guy on this little footbridge and so he witnessed this but didn't stop or do anything but what he did do was he called another driver that was about a mile behind him his name is Clifton Ramey and he said hey uh take a look at this van that's uh, parked on the side of the turnpike because this is 12 30 in the morning keep in mind so Clifton also passes by and Clifton claims he saw uh, a blue van there. The sliding side door was open. And because the door was open, the dome light was on. And he saw a guy fumbling with a bucket. Okay. They let that go. He kept going. And then um, on August 10th, the severed head was found. 
keep in mind that it's August 7th, three days before. So August 10th, the severed head was found and made national news. August 11th, the next day, these guys are calling the Hollywood Police Department. Dennis Bub calls them. And I got Dennis's Bub from the phone record log. And I, I called him and I said, hey, uh, Dennis, because uh, when he called, they completely dismissed him. So, but, it, but his phone call is, is there. It made it stayed in the logs. So I got his phone number. I went to talk to him up in Central Florida, where he lives now. And uh, I said, hey, uh, Dennis, listen, you, is this you that made this phone call? And he said, yes. And I says, uh, let me ask you something. When you called the Hollywood Police Department, what did you tell them and what did they say to you? Because there's no statements in the Hollywood files. There's only the phone call that he made a phone call. That uh, He said, well, I called him to tell them what I witnessed. And I told him that he, I saw this guy with a blue van parked in the swell area. And there was a guy standing on the footbridge. And he had a bucket, a white bucket. It was taking something round out of the bucket. And he threw it into the water. And I said, and what did the police say to you? And he says, they said, yeah, yeah, we already know about the blue van. It has nothing to do with the Adam Walsh case. And they just dismissed him outright. And so I, called so, I got a hold of Clifton Ramey. Clifton Ramey told me the same thing. Clifton says he thought the guy was having a radiator problem, but the, the hood wasn't up. He thought the guy was down by the, uh, maybe trying to get some water because he saw the guy with the white bucket. But what he witnessed is the guy was already back by the van and he was fumbling with the bucket by the side sliding door inside the van. He could see because he was sitting up high in, in, you know, in an 18-wheeler. And uh, so he could see, look down and see what was going on in there because the dome light was on. So there was some light in there too. So he called them and they dismissed him outright with the same statement, you know, nothing related to the Adam Walsh case. And there were several other witnesses there as well that witnessed the same thing. They believe that they saw Jeffrey Dahmer disposing of Adam Walsh's head in the canal that night. Well, they don't know what it was. All they know is he was right. taking something round out of a bucket and throwing it into the water. Now, this is three days before Adam's severed head was found. I called the medical examiner, uh, Dr. Ronald Wright. And when I told him what I, I, I even sent him a copy of my book. And uh, he agreed that, you know, that timeline is right on, spot on. Because when, and when they found that severed head, they were doing everything they could to determine the length of time. You know, they do uh, a check on bacteria. They even put a, a pig's head in the water to see what the, a decomposition would be, you know. And so they tr they tried everything to figure out the length of time the head could have been in the water. And they came up with anything from a day to two weeks. That was it, the, the, their, their window. Wow. But now that we know what the window was, three days, two and a half to three days, because this was 1230 in the morning. It was, you know, from the time it was found. It was just under three days, and that's the time frame that it was in the water. Most likely, if you believe that that was a severed head that was something round that was being taken out of a bucket and tossed into the water, because, you know, they didn't find anything else round in the water, right? The only thing right. they found was a severed head. They didn't find any basketballs in the water. They didn't find anything round other than a severed head. So what could have that been that was tossed into that water? And just to kind of validate that point when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested years later I believe they found something like 13 human heads in his apartment decapitated heads yeah many body trophies right 
so all of this information came forward, and like you said, it it started days after Adam's disappearance to years after Adam's disappearance. You began collecting what little, I, I wouldn't even call it evidence, but the files that the Hollywood Police Department had collected about Adam's disappearance over the years, but you began to find these discrepancies. Right. Keep in mind, the FBI files, there were witnesses calling the FBI as well. Not only from South Florida, but from other parts of the country. But the thing is with the FBI files, the FBI had nothing to lose. You know, they had nothing to do with this case. They weren't covering up anything. But yet their files were so redacted. Every witness name was completely redacted. So, you, you know, they almost were useless as far as trying to do an investigation and track anybody down. But the Hollywood Police Department, who were in full cover-up mode, remember there's an old saying, when you mess up, never fess up. And when Dharma was captured and they realized how bad they really messed up the Adam Walsh investigation, they went into full cover-up mode. And that's when the evidence that they had from Otis Tool you know, his car, the carpet clippings and hair samples, uh, all grew legs and walked off. Everything disappeared from the Hollywood uh, file, uh, uh, evidence room. What exactly were those pieces of evidence that they had collected? Okay. Keep in mind, in 81 and, or in 80, 83, when Otis Tool confessed, they took that vehicle and they took, to, took it to the Jacksonville lab and um, did a, the most still examination of a vehicle that could possibly be done. They had hair samples from the dashboard, the, the center council, the uh, floorboards, the trunk area. There were hair samples everywhere that they collected. And by the way, not one hair sample matched the hair standards that were taken from the severed head that was found from Adam. Not one matched Adam. And that was the car that Otta said he was driving when he abducted Adam, right? That is. But nothing matched. There was no DNA, but nothing matched. Okay? They did take photos, lots of photos and, 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 and that, but nothing matched. But anyway, like I said, they went into full cover-up mode, just like Milwaukee does, you know, because Milwaukee messed up bad, too, you know, before Dahmer was captured. Because the building Dharma was living in, there were so many complaints about uh, the stench coming out of his apartment, out of that building. Uh, Because he was taking body parts and putting them in the dumpsters. The cats were all gathering. They would see Dharma coming along with garbage bags. They would go crazy. The cats, there would be like 20 of them following them around, you know, according to other witnesses there. You know, they're trying to get into the dumpster. Right. You know, at at his garbage bags. One witness uh, uh, that lived a block away. Because, you know, one time the dump, the garbage truck picked up the uh, garbage, emptied the dumpster from that uh, Oxford building. And as it would uh, compacting the garbage, one of the bags burst and this brown ooze, a sludge, was drew, drew, uh, dripping down the side of the truck. And as it was making its rounds through the neighborhood, it was spreading the stink around the whole neighborhood. One, one witness a, a block away said... That area stunk so bad, it was the armpit of Milwaukee. He ended up moving because of it. And um, uh, what happened was uh, people were calling the police constantly because of the stench complaints. And they were going there trying to figure it out. One time they kicked the door open to another apartment just two doors down from Dorman on the same floor. And 
they thought that's where the stench was coming from, that room, thinking somebody died in there. So they kicked the door down, but they didn't find anything and they left. You know, uh, many times they were there. People were uh, pulling their refrigerators out, looking for dead rats. Dogs were barking all hours of the night. You know, it was just crazy. So the police kept going there. And also many of the other apartments kept get, having break-ins. But mm. eventually he was captured. But before he was captured, uh, there was this little boy that he had because he had this experiment he was doing, drilling holes into people's heads and, right. and injecting with a, a turkey basin needle, watered down muriatic acid mm-hmm. and uh, trying to... Uh, make a zombie uh, and he had this one kid a loatian kid and um he did that to him and he thought his experiment was working pretty good so he decided to go to a bar and uh, get some drinks meantime his uh zombie escaped the conorex and phone is his name and mm-hmm. um he escaped these two young black girls one was 17 one 18 they saw this naked little boy in the street stumbling around and so they called 911. The fire department shows up first. They put in a, uh, trying to take care of this kid. And then the f- police show up and the girls uh, are standing there telling them, you know, what happened. They, they found this guy stumbling around in the street. And then here comes Jeffrey Dahmer coming back from the bar. And he goes over to see what's going on. And he tells the police that that's his 19 year old lover, right? his boyfriend. And the girls are screaming, he's not 19, he's just a little boy, look at him. Mm-hmm. And the cops tell the two girls to shut up, butt out, or they're going to take them downtown. Wow. Which means to jail. So anyways, they force the two girls to leave. And they give the kid back to Dharma, who immediately murders the boy. And, and uh, decapitates him and boils his head to make a trophy out of it. So once Dharma was captured, that made big news about the police who dismissed the two black girls. They took the word over the white guy, over the two black girls. So all the minority communities were out in huge numbers. There were almost riots like there was in Ferguson. There could have been riots very easily there. And to prevent the riots, the police were, you know, not wanting to do much of an investigation. So they were only admitting to the ones Dharma would admit to and charge him for those but there was another one in Dharma's building that happened four months before Dharma was captured. Now, this was an open homicide. This guy was in apartment, Dharma was in apartment 213. This guy was in apartment 308, the floor above Dharma, okay? He was found in his room. His name was Dean Vaughn. And he was found in his room, uh, drunk, strangled, and sodomized. He was face down on his bed with his pants pulled down to his ankle. And so the police were going to everybody in that building, interviewing them, because they knew it had to be an inside job because that door had a locked uh, key to get in. Right. Key. And if you were visiting, you needed to use the intercom system to be buzzed in. So they, they just knew it had to be somebody. So they even went to Dharma's apartment. They interviewed Jeffrey Dharma. And Dharma was so scared because he thought he was going to get caught for the two bodies he had on his bed. One was in the bathtub and one was on the bed in his bedroom. And they asked Dharma, says, can we look around your apartment? And Dharma says, you could look all you want, but they never went into the bedroom. <laughs> and so, so anyway, after Dharma was captured, you know, they, they did not ever charge Dharma for Dean Vaughn's murder because Dharma claimed he didn't know the guy. 
But I called people that lived in that building. They said, of course, Dharma knew him. They saw Dean going into Dharma's apartment. They saw Dharma going into his apartment one time. They even uh, they even knew the guy personally. He said his name, uh, he went by the name of String Bean because he was a real thin guy. Hmm. So the police don't want to make the connections. Right. They don't want they don't want to make this case worse than it already is. So, like I said, when you when you mess up, you go you you don't fess up, and they cover up. That's what they do. Was there any other evidence that you found from the Hollywood Police Department that seemed to be missing, or did you ever question any of them that you got really you know responses that didn't seem to be like what it should be? What what have you found? as the collective over your years of investigating this case? Well, I, I can tell you that one time I went to the Hollywood police department because our new police chief took over after the other police, uh, uh, Jim Scarberry was forced out of the police department because the FBI did a sting operation on that police department. You know, how many police departments have the FBI doing sting operations on their police department because of, there's so much corruption in there. So they conducted a, uh, an operation and they ended up arresting four of their detectives. They would have had plenty more arrests except for the police chief leaked to his underlings that the FBI was on to them. They were given escorts to, uh, for trucks with drugs out of Port Everglades to uh, warehouse destinations. They were given uniformed police escorts to these trucks getting paid $38 an hour. So the police, they infiltrated uh, with an undercover agent. But once the uh, police chief leaked that the FBI was on to them, that they, they, they had to call the investigation off uh, because they feared the, uh, the safety of the undercover agent. And so they only arrested four who ended up being tried, convicted, and served long-term prison terms, anywhere from 11 to 16 years in prison for these uh, police officers and detectives over there. So that chief resigned, and, and the chief that closed the case, his name was uh, Chadwick Wagner, who took over the case in 2007, a year before they closed it in 2008. Uh, when he took over, I started sending him phone messages, phone calls, uh, letters, and uh, I, I, they would never respond to me, you know. So I finally started going to other departments, and I even wrote to the other governor of uh, the state of Florida, uh, Charles Christie, I think his name was at the time, and uh, and I got a uh, letter from him. But the thing is, everybody was calling the Hollywood Police Department every time I would go to these other departments, and I even went to the uh, coroner's office, you know, and 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 um, tried to get an appointment over there to talk to them, and they said they can't do nothing. Nobody wants to do nothing unless they go to the Hollywood Police Department first and get permission from them. But uh, anyways, I finally went to the uh, Hollywood Complaints Department to file complaints against them. And I gave uh, this woman, Cheryl Hound, who's in charge of the complaints department, a portfolio of information because she's the one that told me, said, Willis, you need to come to one of the uh, meetings when the commissioners, they meet this Tuesday. They're going to be having a big meeting. You need to be there. He says, I'll get you in. Make sure you're there. And uh, you got to tell the story to them. Well, she never called me back. So when I finally called her back 10 days later, all of a sudden her attitude changed. Somebody put her in check. Because now all of a sudden, when I call her back, she goes, well, sir, if you have issues with the Hollywood Police Department, you need to go to them to air out your issues. <laughs> I said, OK, sure. Right. I get it. I get it. Somebody put you in check. Can I just get my portfolio back? She says, well, if you want your portfolio back, you need to go to Hollywood Police Department. 
So obviously they will put, you know, everybody's getting put in check. So I went to the Florida uh, Department of Law Enforcement. I talked to this real nice female detective and she told me she's going to set me up with an appointment and everything. And then all of a sudden, like the next day, I get a call from Sergeant Lalbeen at the Hollywood Police Department. And he goes, okay, we're going to give you that interview. <laughs> like that. Right. So I go in for the interview. And I, I meet the chief there, and, you know. He shook my hand. Only after I put my hand out there, he didn't really want to shake it. But he ended up shaking my hand. And he assured me that this is going to, because I asked him, I said, can you do me a favor? I want to make sure this is going to be amicable here, you know? Right. (laughs) And he goes, this is what he says to me. He goes, like like he's talking to a fifth grader. He goes to me, he goes, these very nice detectives are going to listen to everything you have to say and take notes. He goes like that to me. okay so anyway during that interview these detectives were acting more like deceased jeffrey Dahmer's unsolicited attorneys than they were homicide detectives doing everything they can to stick up for jeffrey Dahmer, you know and even at the end of that interview when they seemed like they weren't getting anywhere you know one of the detectives loud bean jumps up flailing his arms about and he goes you know we could arrest you for this. You just admitted you were at the Hollywood Mall. For I know you could have done it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so then he backs up like a little tough guy, folds his arms, and says with a smirk on his face, so, you think you ever want to come back here again? Wow. And then they escorted me out the door and said, adios. That's unbelievable. There's yeah. one, we talked about Mia Taylor and her and their encounter with her brother there with Jeffrey Dahmer, who she years later identified after she was contacted uh, to pick a photo out of a lineup. There was another investigator who you have mentioned specifically that Mia also had mentioned. And that was a man by the name of Joe Matthews. She Mia claimed that Joe wrote a book about the case and actually completely falsified information that was given. Or they basically claimed that she gave information that she says, No, I never gave this information to anybody. I don't know where they came up with that. Well, in Joe's book, you know, which is a completely false narrative of everything that occurred, you know. Um, the book is titled Bringing Adam Home. That's the book he used to close the Adam Walsh case. Actually, he had a manuscript that he used. He handed it to the Hollywood Police Department and, and bamboozled them into closing the case based on his manuscript that he named after himself, the Matthews Report. And then after they closed the case, he took the manuscript and gave it to a, a writer. And he asked them uh, if he could make that into a book. And so he took that manuscript, uh, Les Standiford. And he made it into the book, Bringing Adam Home. So he's the co-author of the book. In that book, Matthews claims many people have said things that they didn't say. Um, For one example, before we get to that, Mia Taylor, Barry Covelton. Okay. He worked in the uh, infirmary where Adam, uh, where, excuse me, where Otis Toole passed away. And in Joe's book, he claims that he talked to Barry, and Barry said that Otis gave him a full confession 
before he passed away. Okay. Barry passed away himself, so I have no way to talk to Barry. But what I do have is Barry's interview under oath that he did with the state attorney's office. And this is what Barry really said. In that interview, Barry's, because, you know, one day I was watching TV and I saw John Walsh come on and say something about artists who given a deathbed confession. But that's just not so. Artist Tool never opened up to anybody about anything. So how does that match what Matthew says in his book? Because, see, Matthews, once somebody passes away, you can claim they said anything you want because no, he thinks nobody can verify it. Right. Because nobody takes the effort to go through those case files and read everything. But I did. Because I felt it was like my duty. I had to do it. And when I found Barry, what Barry really said, under oath, that didn't match what Matthews is saying. I started thinking, you know, because, you know, you can go anywhere on Google and you'll see there's everywhere, everywhere, this stupid narrative about Artist Tool's deathbed confession that never happened. There's also another story about Matthew spreading about Artist Tool's niece. Uh, her, her name is Sarah Patterson. So he claims that Sarah Patterson called him one day and said her uncle gave a deathbed confession. Well, Sarah Patterson also did an interview with the state attorney's office under oath. And in her interview, she claims the last time she met her uncle Artis was nine months before he passed away. How is that a deathbed confession, number one? Right. And then during that same interview that she's doing with uh, Phil uh, Mundy, she says, and by the way, at the end of the interview, near the end of the interview, she goes, oh, and by the way, when you see that Walsh, can you tell him that Matthews is a jerk and an idiot? Wow. So why goes, do you think? You mean, you mean Detective Matthews? You said, yeah, Detective Matthews. Tell him, tell John he's an idiot and a jerk. I'm paraphrasing. Why do you so, think Joe Matthews was so hellbent on giving out all of this false information? Did he just make it up in order to produce a book, to produce a story, or was there something more behind it? Well, I can give you his phone number and you can call him and ask him. You know, your guess is as good as mine. But right. yeah, I think your point on with what you're saying, that he could have wanted to please John Walsh. He could have wanted the credit, you know, for solving a case. You know, you could you could guess as much as I want to guess, you know, because he later became very good friends with John Walsh. Right. Right. John hired him on his show. The reason John hired him is because back in 1981, John uh, Detective Matthews worked for the uh, Miami Beach Police Department. He was a, a homicide detective, but he also had his own business on the side called the Southern Institute of Polygraph. So the Hollywood Police Department hired his company's to do the uh, polygraph exams of John Walsh and James Campbell. And he dismissed both James Campbell and John, John Walsh outright. So in 1987, when they started that show, America's Most Wanted, and Matthews heard about it, he called John, and he reminded John that he's the one that dismissed them, that, you know. And so out of gratitude, apparently, you know, my guess, John Walsh hired him as the, uh, the lead investigator in America's Most Wanted, thinking that he may have been the one and only decent detective out of the bunch because, you know, he points the finger to, uh, at, they all point at each other, but Matthews the most points it at everybody else other than him when he was the biggest bumbling, stumbling idiot of all of them. 
you know, but he blames everything on the other lead detective, uh, Jack Hoffman. So John Walsh considers him now to be his best friend and colleague, and as well as uh, Chad Wagner. You know, if you watch the closing interview where John Walsh gets up and praises uh, Chad Wagner, you know, because he got his closure. Jeffrey Dahmer was questioned about Adam Walsh's disappearance and asked at one point if he had anything to do with it. And Dahmer always denied it, but made the remark at one point that whoever had done that to Adam Walsh could never have survived in prison. Do you think that Jeffrey Dahmer, if he did in fact kill Adam Walsh, just never confessed to it because he was afraid of what would happen to him in prison if he did? Which ironically is exactly what did happen to him. Right. Uh, Christopher Scarver, who ended up murdering Dahmer. But uh, anyway, yes, uh, everybody interviewed Dahmer. The FBI, he denied it. Uh, the Milwaukee Police Department, he denied it as well as the Hollywood Police Department, after uh, uh, well over a year uh, after he was captured that they finally got up there and interviewed him because uh, they were giving John Walsh every excuse not to go up there. Uh, the lead detective, Jack Hoffman, did not want to interview Dahmer, but uh, he kept using up every excuse. So finally John Walsh and the FBI, after prodding them for so long, John Walsh got so upset, he went to the state attorney's office and asked the state attorney... Um, to write a letter stating that Florida would not seek capital punishment if Dahmer would confess, because all he wanted was a confession. He took that letter, went back to the Hollywood Police Department, handed it to Jack, and said, here, here's a letter on the concession of death. Now, go up there and interview him. So with his back to the wall, out of running out of excuses, he came up with his very last excuse that he could come up with, saying that the police department didn't have any money for that kind of a, a trip. So John told him, he said, listen, I'm making pretty good money on TV these days, so I'll pay for your trip. So it was back to the wall, out of excuses. Finally, on August 13th, I believe it was 1994, he went up there to interview Jeffrey Dahmer. And um, he brought that letter with him, but he never offered it in the confession to Jeffrey Dahmer. And the reason I know that is because it was a taped interview. And nowhere in that interview does he mention that letter to Jeffrey Dahmer. Because he was afraid Jeffrey Dahmer might just accept my opinion again. And, and so that was, said, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, he came back. Uh, I, the whole interview was a fake interview, if you listen to it. He was just asking Dahmer softball questions about his upbringing and stuff like that. And every once in a while, he would throw in a, an Adam Walsh question. And none of it matched with, uh, like I said, with Ken Havlin said. You know, his boss that in that interview, he said he was working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, so many hours. He never got any time off, you know, all of that stuff that didn't match. He didn't have a vehicle. Nothing matched with what every other witnesses and everybody else where he worked said. But anyway, so uh, when he came back, Jack Hoffman came back to South Florida. He called John and told John that uh, Dahmer looked him straight in the eye and said he didn't do it. He said he believed him. And then he called me too. Jack Hoffman called me and told me, he says, listen. He says, I'm dismissing Jeffrey Dahmer because he looked me straight in the eye and said he didn't do it, you know? And you know what? He goes, I believe him. I said, well, you think maybe someone could have forgot? Oh, and he told me, he said, by the way, this doesn't match that little kid's M.O., you know? Uh, or Dahmer's M.O. for that little kid. And I said, well, listen, Jack. I said, do you think it's possible somebody could have forgot to tell Dahmer that he had an M.O. to stick to? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> And he just 
everything he listed for the reasons why he was dismissing Dahmer, I would later find out to be totally phony. Well, we know that Dahmer had victims as young as 13. And obviously from the encounters that everyone had with who they fully believe was Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, you were 34 at the time, all the way down to very young children. Yes. And everywhere in between. So like you said, he didn't really have an MO to stick to. It just seemed like he was going to take whoever was willing to go with him. Or not willing. Or not willing. If right. The opportunity was there. Absolutely. You know? So that interview happened August of 94. Like you said, Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison in November of 94, taking right. any truth to the case to the grave with him. Right. right. Now, keep in mind that, you know, the, one of the biggest things the police used to dismiss Dahmer is that he was into black people because he lived in a black neighborhood. He was the only white guy in that building, the Oxford building, you know, and so they use that for their reason for dismissing him. But, you know, listen, if you live in a black neighborhood, I think your victims are going to be mostly black, you right. know, especially if you go into gay bars just a block away from where he lived. You know, there was a whole strip of gay bars there. That's where he was picking most of these people up. Uh, you know, they're going to be black. If Jeffrey Dahmer lived in an Irish neighborhood, there would be Irish victims. If he lived in an Italian neighborhood, an Asian neighborhood, a Latin neighborhood, no matter where he lived, he was going to have victims. Right, right. And, uh, you know, in Miami here, you know, I guarantee you that there are many victims that we don't even know about. You know, when, uh, when uh, before Adam Severed Head was found, John Walsh, in his book, Tears of Rage, he mentions it as well. And I talked to the medical exam- examiner as well, like I told you earlier. Well, John Walsh mentions that he talked to the medical examiner, and, and, and the medical examiner said to him, said, John, listen, you have to accept the fact that Adam may be dead. And he told him, said, listen, we have many bodies in the uh, morgue of young girls, most likely runaways. They're all Jane Doe's. Brutally, brutally. And so I started thinking, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was so lonely. He was riding around because I know he was looking to try to try to pick me up. You know, I didn't realize it at, at the time because I didn't know who this guy was. I thought he was just lonely, wanted somebody to talk to. But afterwards, when I found out he was, who he was, especially, I realized he was trying to pick me up. Right. But uh, do you think if Jeffrey Dahmer was driving down the road in the middle of the night in this blue band and somebody was, was hitchhiking, no matter if it was a guy, a girl, black, white, Spanish, no matter who it was, do you think he would have not be, been lonely like he was? He would have not stopped and given them a ride? Right. And it would have been a ride to hell. Yeah. You know? Right. And so the medical examiner told John, he says, listen, we have many bodies in, the, in our morgue here, you know, of Jane Doe's, all from that era when Dharma was down here. So I started thinking, I went to the medical examiner's office to see who some of these Jane Doe's were, but they wouldn't cooperate. You know, they told me, well, if you don't have an exact name, and I said, yeah, I have a name, Jane Doe. Right. And they said, well, you need a date because, you know, all our files are not computerized going back that far. And if you don't have an exact date, we can't help you. And eventually they told me, well, I need to go to the uh, Hollywood Police Department, you know, get permission from them to do any searches, and which is ludicrous, you know. But anyway, so they wouldn't help. But I started thinking, you know, when I was going through the case files, I saw some uh, phone calls that were made right there from Hallandale, 
down the street. One was a block away at this convenience store that I pass every night on my way home. Of And the call said that there was a man in a blue van in front of this convenience store. And the, the guy matched the composite from the Adam Walsh case. So I started thinking, because, you know, about three weeks, and the date was right, too. I forget the exact date off the top of my head. But it was like uh, uh, one of the days uh, that I was working, like I think it was a Wednesday that this call was made. And I get off work at 5 a.m. And one day, about three weeks after, after the Adam Walsh uh, abduction, after I had that encounter with this guy, I was on my way home. And as I was driving down the street, I turned on to uh, 8th Street. This blue van is following me. I make a right, the blue van's still following me. I make a left, the blue van's still following me. Then I turn out to Bedford Avenue and the blue van's still behind me. And I'm thinking, oh, they're delivering the newspapers. Because that's what time they deliver newspapers. Now, I pulled up to my house. My boat's in the, in the driveway, so I, I parallel parked in front. And a blue van pulls up alongside of my car. As I'm getting out, this guy rolls his window down. And he says to me, he goes, hey, do you have insurance? You have insurance for what? He goes, you almost hit me back there. I said, well, well almost doesn't count. <laughs> And right. I go to my house. I go in the bedroom and start taking everything out of my pockets and stuff, my wallet, my keys, and all that. And then I started thinking about that blue van. And I decided, I said, let me go just check. I go to the kitchen, I look out the window, the blue van's still there. Wow. The guy's out of the blue van, and he's sitting on the hood of my neighbor's car. But I just didn't make the connection to the, to the, uh, to the uh, Hollywood Mall, the same guy. I, I, I it just didn't make the connection, you know, because, I mean, what's the odds of running into this guy twice? So you think it's possible but, you encountered him twice, uh, not just. I'm sure. No, I'm sure. Listen, so I decided, I said, I, let me just go out and see what he's up to, ask him what his problem is. So I got a knife out of the kitchen drawer. I wasn't going to go out empty handed. And then I decided, no, a knife's not good enough. But I went into the bedroom, I, uh, uh, safe in my bedroom. I got my, my Beretta, my 38 out. Yeah. Put the Beretta in my pocket. I had the 38 tucked in my pants and uh, I went outside, but he was gone. He wow. was gone. And so I, I, I couldn't find him. I went everywhere looking for him and I, I just couldn't find him. But I, then I, it hit me. That's the guy I saw in the mall. The same guy. That's I knew it, but crazy. I had no way to prove it again. I was going to call the police, but I remember the first time I called the police, they wanted the tag number. I didn't get the tag number. Right. So I didn't even bother calling the police that time. But I, to this day, I say that was the same guy. I, you know, I don't like talking about it because everybody thinks you're nuts when you, you know, what's the odds right. of meeting twice? But keep in mind, this is five o'clock in the morning. It's very quiet. So, you know, not too many cars on the street. And, and that witness that said that he was in the area, he was in that convenience store, it was a phone call that was right. made. And, that, and he was at that co- store, that convenience store. Where, and, and he even said that, you know, that it matched the composite, this guy. So the case was officially closed in 2008. John Walsh made this public declaration that they were completely satisfied that Autostool really was Adam's killer. Have you ever reached out to John or anyone in the family to let them know the work that you've done to get their opinion if they have any at all about what you would have to say? Well, let me say this. John Walsh, I'm sure, knows of me, okay? Because in, um, when that 
let me say 25 years later after the Adam Walsh abduction, because every year they used to do like an anniversary show on the news and it became fewer and fewer shows and more sporadic. But the 25th anniversary, for some reason, 25 years, uh, they, uh, they did a big show. Uh, there were TV stations coming down here to do shows on it and everything. And um, uh, a TV um, show from out of Milwaukee, uh, Channel 12 up in Milwaukee, I forget their call letters, but uh, they came down here and they interviewed me and Bill Bowen, who they flew down here. Uh, this was, uh, I think it was about the time that, the, let me, I'm trying to get my timeline straightened out here, but anyway, they flew down here and, and they did a big show and then they did another show when the, when that police report was found as well. And like I said, ABC primetime. And back then John Walsh was saying, there are credible witnesses referring to Bill Bowen because that, you know, we were both on that, those shows, Bill Bowen and myself. And there were two credible witnesses and the police haven't interviewed them. And I, me, someone who has done so much for police departments all over this country, and they can't even interview these two witnesses. And he's shaking his angry finger into the camera as he's saying this. Mm. And so he wanted them to interview us. And he, but yet when they close the case, all of a sudden he dismisses us, you know, right. um, I've driven up to Vero Beach to Bay Walsh's house, and she she lives. She has a big gate around surrounding her house for security purposes, I presume. So I couldn't get in, but I left a copy of my book, in fact, two copies of my book at her gate. And uh, my attorney, one of my attorneys, sent John Walsh a copy of my book, but I've never heard from John. Do you think they were just so desperate to close the case? and get some type of closure for Adam that they were just ready to move on and they just don't really want to hear any other opinions anymore. Right. I, I also think, are you familiar with the Stockholm syndrome? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's where a, a woman in, 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 uh, in Stockholm was abducted and she uh, became to like, became so fond of her abductor that she refused to testify against him. And, right. Uh, on the case and all. And so they've called it the Stockholm Syndrome. It's just like Patty Hearst when she was abducted in 1972 by the Sibianese Liberation Army. Right. She became so fond of her abductors that she even robbed the bank with them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a little bit of that going on here. You know, John Walsh hired this detective who had in his midst for so many years feeding him such false information about his own son's abduction that John Walsh now considers him his best colleague and friend. And he has John so convinced that it was Otis Tool that John Walsh just believes him. You know, after after he, he didn't believe anything in the beginning, all of a sudden they close the case. And these guys that he wrote books about, Tears of Rage, lambasting these people, are his best friends and colleagues now. You know, so, I mean, right. they have a long history down here in South Florida of pinning murders on innocent people all to make themselves look good. Because I list other cases in my book that they've done the same thing, including Joe Matthews. They do the same thing. They go after people, pin murders on them, just to make themselves look good. They go after the the weak, the poor, the homeless, the downtrodden, who have no money, no education, no family to come to their aid. They pin murders on them to make themselves look good. I can give you case after case. Frankly, Smith's been 
14 years on death row. And he died of pancreatic cancer before they found him innocent with DNA and caught the real guy. Wow. In the meantime, while he's sitting on death row, this real guy that uh, I believe his name was Eddie Mosley murdered 11 other women. Right. Because of their incompetence and their, their need to make themselves look good. Right. You know, and there's other cases like that that I list in my book, you know. And fortunately, fortunately, in the Adam Walsh case, Otis Tool was already a deceased corpse when they tried to, you know, these people pinned his murder on Adam. You know, well, he passed away 12 years right. earlier. We are going to wrap this up for now, but this is not the end of our investigation into this case. You have given us a ton of other names and contact information for other people that we are going to be reaching out to. A lot of those are named in your book. So before we go, I want you to tell everyone where they can purchase Frustrated Witness, where they can reach out to you if they have any questions or even potentially any other information that they would like to share about this case. Right. Well, to make it easy, the only place you really need to go is frustratedwitness.com without the exclamation mark. Because, you know, my book is titled Frustrated Witness with an exclamation mark. But on a website, you can't use exclamation mark. So it's just frustratedwitness.com. Because from that site, you can go to Amazon, you can go to uh, Borders, you can go to uh, Walmart online to buy the book okay you can read about the book look at uh, other video shows and there's a, a, a plethora of information there that you can go through and as well as you can click there's a link also on there to uh uh my other website justice for adam on that west website justiceforadam.com you can see all the case files i have the fbi case files there i have the milwaukee police department uh interviews with dharma i have uh the uh, state attorney's office the 17th district attorney's office in fort lauderdale i also have uh, the hollywood police department's uh records there now we didn't even get into the uh, lawsuit that i filed against the hollywood police department and uh, other areas of this case but uh, that's all listed at justiceforadam.com. You can read all about my lawsuit. You can also do a Google search. Just type in Hollywood Police Department, Willis Morgan, comma, Hollywood Police Department, comma, Willis Morgan, comma, lawsuit. And you can read uh, some articles there that are still around about the lawsuit that I filed against these people. Willis Morgan, it's been informative and shocking and disturbing to hear about all of these cases, like I said before, I didn't think when I first heard about this that there's any way that it could be true. But the more that we talk, the more that I think that the case that you have made against Jeffrey Dahmer um, is a very firm case. And so thank you so much for being part of Serial Spirits podcast. You know, if we continue to dig in this, we may have you on again, even with some of these other guests, if, if they're willing to come on and talk about it, uh, to share their stories again. So thank you for being part of the podcast. You're very welcome. Okay, what I have to say right now is you just got done listening to the second part of Annie's interview with Willis Morgan. And this case, 
like when I first heard this story, and I'm going to get Andy's take on it here in a second. But when I first heard this theory, this guy was coming up with, I was like, there's no way, there's no way the justice system got this wrong. The investigators got this wrong, but you hear all the compelling evidence and it makes you really think like, wow. I mean, even the composite sketches that, that he had at the time of what this guy who kidnapped Adam Walsh looked like is a dead ringer for Jeffrey Dahmer. And I'm convinced. I mean, I'm 100% convinced that, you know, he had, maybe he was the guy. He was the guy that kidnapped and murdered Adam Walsh. And I know you talked to him at length, Annie, about this. I mean, what are your final thoughts on this interview? Like you, when I first heard this story, there was no way that I thought that any of it could be legit. I've talked with Willis multiple times, along with other people who he named in this interview series. And I fully believe, number one, that Otis Tool did not kidnap and murder Adam Walsh. And again, if you've seen the Netflix series called The Confession Killer, you'll understand that Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Tool confessed to hundreds of murders that they most likely did not commit. These were really mentally ill men who were seeking attention. Praise, yeah, praise. And gifts from law enforcement. So I firmly believe that Otis Toll had nothing to do with Adam Walsh's disappearance and murder. So that leaves you with who did it? Why not Jeffrey Dahmer? He was in the area. You look at the pattern of his crimes. I mean, the only part of Adam Walsh that was ever found was his head. And so you look at the facts behind Jeffrey Dahmer's when he was arrested, there were 13 human heads in his apartment. Bodies, and, of, and of all things to find of Adam yeah, Walsh. Yeah, I mean, just dismembered bodies all over the place. Yes, he was younger than all of Dahmer's other victims, but it was just, I think he was there looking for absolutely anyone who would go with him because Willis was an adult. And so he probably realized that he wasn't being stealthy enough to capture an adult and take him home, why not a kid? Well, he also was very drunk at this point, too. He was a severe alcoholic. He was drunk he all was the time. kicked out of the military for being a drunk. And the way that Willis said it in the interview was that he was looking like he was seeking someone, some type of companionship because he seemed lonely and disheveled and that he just wanted human interaction. He didn't care where it came from, whether he picked people up, you know, at the bars on the streets, the youngest victim that they knew of was 13 years old. They found that victim deceased. So why not another child? I feel like the evidence that Willis Morgan has collected over the past 40 plus years, along with all of these other witnesses who have come forward, make a very compelling case that Jeffrey Dahmer absolutely could have been Adam Walsh's killer. And I just want to throw a little side note in there, too. In the thing, it sounds like Willis, and this is what I got from it, Willis is kind of saying, you know, John Walsh really didn't know what, he, he didn't believe him, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, as parents, could never imagine that tragedy. And putting yourself in John Walsh's shoes, it probably just got to a point after so many years that they just wanted the case to be closed. They just wanted it closed. I don't know if I said this in the interview, but he, I read somewhere that John Walsh said that they actually did not receive Adam's 
remains, his decapitated head, until 27 years after his murder, that it actually remained in evidence with the Hollywood, Florida Police Department. Can you imagine, as a parent, not being able to at least put your child to rest? I know that I would want, I would have to have some type of closure to be able to pick up what pieces are left of your life and try to move on. And so I I don't think it was that John Walsh didn't believe him, didn't take any of this into consideration. I think he was just so devastated by what has happened in his life that I think at some point you just don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear any other information and you definitely don't want to hear that friggin' Jeffrey Dahmer was the last face that your child saw. Exactly. And it's, I mean, it's a terrible thing to think about and you've thought about it for so long. And I've always enjoyed watching America's Most Wanted and John Walsh has really helped a lot of families, helped a lot of people through his tragedy. He he faced the most unimaginable tragedy that any of us could ever face. And he stepped up his game and he said, I got to help other people who are, you know, part of this tragedy as well. And I just, I don't want people to think that, that Willis was saying, you know, something negative about John Walsh because he wasn't. He was just saying that he presented him with this evidence, but I think it was to the point where they just wanted to dismiss it. And also, it just some of these cases are so high profile that, that the cops are so, under so much immense pressure to solve. And it's not that there's corruption or that they don't care. I mean, sometimes that is the case, but I just think there's so much pressure on a lot of these law enforcement officers to solve these crimes that they just go to the first thing that they can. And that guy, Otis Tool, confessed to it, and he was like, yeah, I did it. So, like, we got our guy. You're talking about another small police department who was not in any way, shape, or form prepared to take on a case like that. And so we've seen that and talked about this in a lot of other cases you know, where people go missing and people are murdered and there's still no answer for it in small towns. They just don't have the means and the experience to really dive into it. And so you do. You want to close a case. And so you start looking at those who are closest to the family, number one. And then you look for the ones who are, I guess, the most convenient even if it doesn't always fit the crime. I 100% agree. Rory's sitting here wide awake while Annie holds her, because we can only record when Rory's asleep, and there she is wide awake. Oh, hey, Roar. Annie, do you have anything else you want to add, plug, before we go? No, I'm just super grateful that Willis took the time to sit down and share this story. He said something to me that we did not uh capture in the interview, I don't think. But a lot of these witnesses... Um, The two men who are, they were the drivers who saw the van parked, you know, in the, on the highway. Um, You know, they're getting older. Willis is getting older. And he wants these stories to be recounted to people who won't forget them, who won't let it go. And so I'm very grateful that he took the time to tell us his story And to anyone else who is out there and would like, if they have any type of story that they would like to share, of course, we would love to hear it. If you want to reach out to us, we would be happy to talk with you. If it's something that you've never shared with anyone, we'd be happy to put you in touch with Willis uh, so that you can recount your encounter to him as well. Yeah. And if you get a chance and you want to check out his book, he told you what it was called before he gave you the links, but you can, you can find his book on, I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon. Frustrated Witness on Amazon. Yes. It's Frustrated Witness. And he goes into more detail and 
a big thank you to Willis Morgan from me as well, because, you know, this is something that nobody, I think, would have ever thought about doing. And it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication and a lot of courage to stand up and and do this kind of work. So thank you very much, Willis Morgan, for joining us on the podcast. And with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and sign off, guys. Uh, We will be back Next week, with our first serial snippet of 2020, I sit down with our good friend Mike Shields and we talk about the missing 411, some of the most interesting cases he's seen in his research. That ought to be interesting, so guys, make sure you check that out. Make sure you check out all the great shows on Paranormal Warehouse. Make sure you go to Paranormal Warehouse and you can become a patron. You can get all this cool stuff. You can get our podcast a week early. That in itself is cool. So go to ParanormalWarehouse.com, become a patron. And from Weebs and myself, we're going to bid you a farewell. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. Find us weekly on all your podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you subscribe. Our theme song was written and produced by Annie Weibel for Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits. You can always find Serial Spirits on www.paranormalwarehouse.com. Check out all the amazing shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer. Also on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Guys, be aware and be safe. We'll see you next time.